0: Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing.
1: On the morning of August 1st, 1966, Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.
2: I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening
0: to Stop the Killing. Welcome back to another episode of Stop the Killing. And first things first, we want to give a shout out to our new Patreon members. Mary Claire W and William Z, thank you so much for your support and do let us know what content you want us to cover over on the Patreon channel. And if you're listening and you believe that the podcast is worth supporting or you simply want the bonus content, access to episodes earlier or without the network ads, then as always, the Patreon link is in the show notes. That's patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. But for this week, thanks again to Mary Claire and William. Right, Catherine, let's crack on to this week's case. What have you got for me today?
2: We're throwing a wild pitch here, but this is a shooting that almost wasn't. So this is a stopped the killing episode? It's a could have stopped a killing episode for a couple of reasons. We do have a shooting, but I want to talk a little bit about bullying. Recent crime statistics here in the National Crime Victimization Survey Done by our National Center for Education and the, our Bureau of Justice, indicated 22% of students said they had experienced bullying. And then let me add this layered statistic. Although there's 22% who said they experienced bullying, they believe only 20% of bullying is reported. Right. Which means that really most kids experience bullying in some way or another. Mm. And the idea that sometimes bullying is an excuse. And it's never an excuse for shooting. But I think that sometimes we don't think of it as an escalating problem. And then we have a school shooting and suddenly people are saying, oh, why did that happen? He was bullied. So we are going to sunny, beautiful California.
0: Home of the raisins. Um,
2: That's what I think of. (laughs) California Raisins, <laughs> but can you sing the song? Uh, no, I can't. <laughs> uh, I don't even know the song. Um, okay. That scares me that you even said Home of the Raisins. <laughs> um, that's good. Though. I, that's true, I guess. So we're going to sunny California, as you said, the Home of the Raisins. Put your way back machine on. Set it for January 10th, mm-hmm. 2013, nine o'clock in the morning. Okay. A 16-year-old with a 12-gauge shotgun climbs the stairs up to the second floor classroom of the science building at Taft High School in Taft, California. He was supposed to be in a science class. This is a school that has about eight hundred kids in it. He walks into the science room, there are twenty eight kids in the classroom, and he immediately lifts his shotgun and fires a round into the belly of a sixteen year old classmate. The students begin to scramble, he fires another round missing what we now believe was his intended target, another student. And he's shooting shotguns, right? So he's shooting kind of bird pellet. I can't tell you exactly what the shot was, but one of the pellets grazes and hits a teacher Mm -hmm. in the head. His name's Ryan Heber. And Ryan is up at the front of the classroom. At some point, very quickly, a lockdown is announced on the intercom. And Something interesting, too, is that they had been scheduled to do a lockdown sometime that day or that week, and all the news coverage immediately after it, students brought that up and they said, oh, we were scheduled to do a lockdown. So when we heard this, we just did it. Mm-hmm. So like, they knew what a lockdown was. And because of that, they immediately went into lockdown. That and Training again, the, kicking in. Training. Yeah, training. In a lot of schools at 2013, there were a larger number of schools in the United States that did not do these types of lockdowns then did them. But these guys had some system in place. So a lockdown is announced on the intercom. And in the meantime, the science teacher, who still teaches at Taft, and in fact was a student there. So this is his life, right? Taft is his life. The teacher and another school employee, Kim Fields, talk to the shooter and astonishingly talk the shooter into setting the shotgun down.
0: Wow. How long was that conversation? Do we have any idea how long it took them
2: to get to that stage? It wasn't long at all. It was a number of minutes. It was very hectic, but it was long enough that they were able to distract the shooter and get the students out of the classroom that were there. The science teacher said his priority was to get those students out. I recall one of the students uh, later said, I heard uh, the shooter say to the science teacher, I don't want to shoot you. So the shooter was focused on his target, and they knew that. The shooter came in, in his head, aiming for some people. Mm -hmm.
0: Visit StubForge.com and start making tickets today.
2: The teacher, who was very well-liked and well-respected, well was able to run, hide, fight. Mm-hmm. He was able to fight verbally with him and say, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. Put the gun down. Put the gun down. And so very quickly, within a few minutes, I would say, he was able to get him to put the gun down. And then police arrived. Police were there within a minute. When you Um, say they were there within a minute, is that factually a minute? Yeah, they were there on campus within a minute. It's because somebody saw a person with a gun and called 911 outside school. Before he'd even got
0: into the building and shot anyone, somebody had reported it. See something, say something.
2: Exactly. There was a school resource officer here in the United States. We have SRO, Mm. school resource officers, in a lot of our schools. But in California, they were having an ice storm. And the school resource officer was unable to get to the school that day because of the roads, Mm. because in California, they don't know how to drive on ice (laughs) and roads. It's like the UK. So they had ice on the road and the school resource officer didn't come to work and had called and reported that he wasn't coming in. The information wasn't related to the school. There was a big lawsuit over it, but it doesn't matter. He wasn't there. And plus, the shooter came in from a side door. Maybe the school resource officer wouldn't have seen him. There's a whole bunch of other factors that when we do the forensic analysis on a shooting, it's not one factor. It's very rarely one factor. And also, a school resource officer's primary duty is really to get to know the kids and to work on prevention methods. Oh, okay. Do they always carry a gun? If they're part of law enforcement, they are. Otherwise, they're not called the school resource officer they're called a security officer so
0: potentially there would have been someone on site at taft with a gun on a normal given day but but even though there wasn't the police have arrived within 60 seconds
2: but let me just tell you a couple more facts Mm -hmm. the student who put the weapon down he had his pockets filled with 20 rounds of ammunition shotgun shells in his pockets Mm -hmm. so he would not necessarily have gone down easily if the teacher in the school administrator hadn't talked him into this. And I just wanted to point that out, Mm. that it's important to know how to run, hide, and fight. Fight can be convincing somebody to stop shooting, and it can be fatal. And there have been people, teachers, administrators who've tried to talk kids out of guns and been killed for it. I know some specific incidents about that. But I want to remind you, the original study that I wrote for the FBI, in the 160 shootings that we studied, 21 of those shootings were stopped by unarmed civilians. And this is an example of a shooting that was stopped by an unarmed civilian. So that's great. But it was so fast, yet had such a long and lasting impact. The rest of the story about the shooting is when you talk about the shooting and we say, oh, this occurred and it happened in a minute or two. Okay, yeah, but there were all these other things that happened, how it impacted the community. You know, this is a very small little town. This town has less than 10,000 people in it. Everybody knows everybody, it has one school campus. The middle school is next to the elementary school is next to the high school. And when you you think about California raisins, which I thought was cute, I think about California and panning for gold. This property where the school was has been a school for Taft for more than 100 years. This is an old district that's been around forever in this tiny little town. And that's why the science teacher went to school there. And then he became a teacher right? Yeah.
0: But tell me about the student that got shot. Did they survive?
2: The student that was shot was medevaced out and he did survive because he was shot in the abdomen, everything a mess. He had lots of surgeries after that and sued the school district for injuries. And he won a pretty sizable settlement, three, almost $4 million against the school district. On the other hand, I think he had 20 some surgeries, whatever those might have been. Mm -hmm. So, and that, you know, was just a student who literally was standing in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was not actually one of the people that the shooter came in to shoot, which makes it even more, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the subject did fire at another individual. And that was somebody that he was trying to hit is my understanding.
0: But he didn't hit that person.
2: Correct. It doesn't become a question of did one person die or was one person injured or were there 25 injured? The impact and what the community goes through is almost all the same. It's all the same types of things. You think about any place where it occurs, there's a terrible shooting, there is a media frenzy to find out what happened, there is a concerted effort within the community and outside the community to provide support to the community in some way or another, and then there's a big recovery. And it doesn't matter if that's one person who's injured or 20 children are killed. The community deals with the same things. So what's really important, I think, is to recognize that when you think about something bad happening in your community, you want to develop a plan that is not just about teaching kids run, hide, fight, or teaching faculty or running drills, but it's about how are we going to recover? But when it comes to recovering, I think that you need to include all the practical things. Like one of the things that I heard from plenty of people in plenty of shootings is everybody mails flowers and teddy bears and cards to places. And then all that does is give that school district or business another big group of things that they have to worry about. That's
0: so true. You always (laughs) see the walls of flowers and memorials Mm -hmm. and candles and... Yeah.
2: I heard one adult victim say, I know it sounds callous, but please skip the cheese plates. Skip the cheese plates. We don't need them. Mm. People want to share. They're emoting. But if you want to share, set up a victim fund. If you want to share, send money to the school district designated for a memorial. If you want to share, find a, another avenue that is already in place to provide victim services, of which there are many in the United States and elsewhere, places that will provide money for free counseling and things like that. Mm -hmm. When you send stuff, it makes you feel good. But when the walls of teddy bears and flowers become Mm -hmm. overwhelming, it's just one more thing. And that's just a little bit because school districts and businesses think about it. They have to think, how am I going to get my business? How am I going to get the kids back into school? They have to bring in repair crews and they have to clean up bullet holes. I remember when Los Angeles International Airport had a shooting in their airport, so a huge airport. And I was there in the terminal and I was talking to the people who run the airport and saying, okay, how did you recover from this? And they said, down there on the carpet, we had to have rip all these carpets out because there's big pools of blood. And we had bullet holes that scaffold required us to get up to close those bullet holes up. And we had to do it overnight so we could get the airport open the next day. And we used signage that wrapped around poles, not because we wanted to add the signage for advertising, because we wanted to cover bullet holes that were in the poles. Gosh, um, it's practicalities
0: that you never think about until you have right. to.
2: Yeah, exactly. And there's all of that. I think the other thing that's it's really helpful to put into place and remember is that people need long-term support. We talk to victims, survivors who say they've been in counseling for six or eight or ten years. That counseling is not cheap, and it's got to be paid for someplace. Mm-hmm. So. Those are the recovery things that I think we don't think about and how a community is affected. There are great resources that are available through the federal government and through private organizations. I'm part of the National Center for School Safety, for instance. Those organizations develop these processes or advertise them, place them out there. There are state-supported websites and federally supported websites that have these playbooks to say, here's how to recover. And then also I would just add that I was part of the Department of Justice, which I think is law enforcement, but there's also the Department of Homeland Security and within the Department of Homeland Security is FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Group, right? And FEMA's job is to prepare For the aftermath. They provide tremendous amount of training to public and private entities for free, your tax dollars, so maybe prepaid. And that training helps you to know what to do. This shooting was in January of 13, which is the month I joined the White House team, because it was right after Sandy Hook. Hook. Right that summer, we released modified emergency operations guides for the federal government that included how to recover from targeted violence. And they never had included that before. That's the part that I brought to the guides. I wrote that part. Amazing. So there are a lot of resources out there, but I think a lot of places don't tap them. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that I always struggle with is until it happens, you don't know.
1: ...to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey... ...to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for
2: doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Because this is a small town, in this case where this shooting occurred... ...there were parents who were teaching at the school... Their spouses were teaching at the school, or one was teaching at the elementary school and the other was teaching at the high school, and they had kids in all three schools. And so all these kids were locked down for hours, very limited communication. Lots of kids didn't have like cell phones to text with and things like that. And the rumors in that time period, room it, as we would say, that's what we call it in the intelligence community. What does that mean? In the intelligence community, you collect intelligence on things, Right. And so if it's just a rumor, it's room it. Well, if you get information from a person, we call it humid, right? H U M. I-N-T, human.
0: As in the blending of human intelligence, you gathered, right? Yeah, I-N-T. we're collecting intelligence, which
2: on. is h- h- what's the information we get? It's intelligence. Mm-hmm. It's coming from a human. So it's called human. But when it's just rumor, we call it rumor. Oh, it makes sense. And you can completely understand why
0: rumors go ballistic at this time, because every little piece of information is scarce, isn't it? So it gets picked up and then run with.
2: This is a really important reason to have a press conference right away, make your statements publicly. If something happens at your location, I've seen dozens of bad examples of wanting to have a perfect press conference. And perfect is the enemy of good and just have a good press conference that says, here's basically what we know. I mentioned that shooting at the Los Angeles airport years ago, they've had three bad shootings there, but this was the last one where a TSA agent was killed point blank. And then the shooter ran inside and then they got into this firefight at the end of Terminal 3, and three very brave officers were able to take the shooter down, and with all these people in the building. So very quick, very fast, very good response. The rumors were all out there. So the police chief said to me, he said, there was so much media there, they set up at two different locations. So he didn't really even know which... Location they should go to, oh, right? Because he was betwixt in between, and he said it t- took about an hour and a half to go out. And he said, I got to tell you, if I had to do it over again, forty-five minutes into this, I knew what was going on. I could have stepped out and had a press conference and said, "This is what we know so far." Mm-hmm. And when you share with the media the information that you know and tell them what you don't know, you cut down on the rumour, you cut down on the rumours in a massive way, mm-hmm. and that helps a community recover uh-huh. because think about it. You know, there's a shooting and it's two hours before you say anything and you have a child in lockdown in a middle school Mm. and everybody wants to share what they've heard that is based on almost nothing. So it's really important to get your statements out there early. It is going to get out. So it's better to get out accurate information. And that's so important to a community's recovery.
0: So the shooter in this case was arrested without a fight. He literally put his gun down. What did he actually get charged with when all was said and done?
2: He fired two rounds. So he was charged with two counts of attempted murder, and he was charged with three counts of assault with a deadly weapon. And in a lot of cases, these are charges that would lead to significant jail time. In this case, he went to a trial by jury. He was facing significant jail time, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. You can't try to kill somebody in the United States and not face a potential charge like Mm -hmm. this. So he went to trial, and he testified, and the jury went out, and after deliberating and deliberating, what is a very unusual circumstance, I'll say as a prior prosecutor, we got what we call a hung jury. So um, the state is allowed to retry the case. It's not an acquittal. The state can retry the case. In this case, he and his attorney pled to a particular charge, and he pled to no contest. This is a kid, and he was sentenced to 27 years and four months in prison. Remind us of how old he was again? 16. Right. 16 when the shooting happened. He was a sophomore in high school. Is he being tried as an adult? Yeah, yeah. If he had been charged as a child, he would have been potentially sentenced to juvenile detention and would have been out within a few years. So let me give you some information about him and how his defense attorney pitched his position. Mm-hmm. And just so you know, as all of these targeted acts of violence are, this was preplanned. This was not an impromptu thing. He took his brother's shotgun and he planned ahead of time. He came to the school late on purpose. Some of the things that we know because he said them. He wanted to come to shoot a couple of kids who had been bullying him. He said he was teased all the time. So he plans this attack and at trial he says he was pushed to violence because he was tormented at school. And I know we hear that a lot in the headlines, but we're going to dig into it a little bit more here because what type of pressure would you have to be under? Sarah, to pick up a gun because somebody was bullying you?
0: Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I think it depends on what state of mind you're at. It might be the last straw for somebody, but it might take a lot for another person to get there.
2: Yeah. and Sometimes the last straw is a punch, right? Mm. It's a punch that's a spontaneous act. These are not spontaneous acts. Mm. But at the defendant's trial, absolutely, the defense counsel put the school district and the students and the community on trial along with the boy. And This is very different than we see in a lot of cases where we have a shooter who commits suicide at the scene or is killed at the scene. And then we hear afterwards, people say he was bullied, Mm -hmm. but we don't have a lot of details in it. Mm. So let me tell you first how the defense counsel postured things in his opening statements. And let me tell you what the community said about this kid, because I think this is what's going on in a lot of communities when we talk Mm. about bullying. So the defense counsel, said in his opening statement was there were just a slew of warning signs. It should have brought this whole thing to the attention of school administrators. So much so that one of the teachers was so concerned about this guy doing a shooting that she actually came up with an escape plan for what she was going to do if he attacked. Wow. So he's saying, look, this kid had a rough childhood. His dad was a bully. He abused him and his mother. Mm. The mom split. Is this sounding familiar? He is uh, bullied in school, including and listeners block your children's ears. He is bullied in school, including an incident during a gym class where a student holds him down while another student puts his genitals on the boy's face in front of
0: others. That's not your garden variety needling and prodding.
2: Exactly. And I mentioned that sometimes bullies become bullies. They get defensive Mm -hmm. too. By his sophomore year, he begins to say things that people are hearing. On the way back from school, it's reported that he says that a staff member hears him making threats about shooting people. And again, this is all the defense counsel saying, look, here's what drove this kid to this situation. A student reported that he was drawing pictures of people being shot. Roomit circulated that there was a hit list. There were other situations where people supposedly reported things and administrators were told, hey, this kid is a concern. He's talking violently. And the assistant principal in the school supposedly said, no, no, he's under counseling. Don't worry about him. Everything's taken care of. Our counselors are taking care of him. The defense counsel says at the time, but the school counselor was actually deposed and the school counselor said she had no contact with the boy. So is he, isn't he you know, oh, the counselor can't remember. So what we have is a blind neglect, it appears. Mm -hmm. There's stuff going on. There's a culture and an atmosphere that allows a little bit of Wild West activity Mm. where people do what they can get away with. But let me tell you some of the things that I picked up that were statements that neighbors and friends and family made to the press about this kid. So this is outside of trial. But when you think about what the community knew, Think about where does the responsibility lie? Mm. Here's a kid. Uh, he comes off as the kind of kid who would do something like this. He talked about it a lot, but nobody thought he would do it. He talked about it a lot. So everybody knew it. Another person who lived next door said he was kind of a short guy and he was teased about his stature all the time. I think he had red hair. He was teased about that all the time. They had nicknames for him. Another person said, maybe people will learn not to bully people. I hate to be that crappy about it, but that kid was bullying him. Meaning, the kid who was shot. That kid was bullying him.
0: So everybody knew it. Yeah, everybody knew it. But does that allow you to wipe your hands of responsibility for your actions?
2: Hung jury, right? Mm. That's why I went to Hung jury. But wait, there's more. Another student who was a friend of his said they called him Ginger all the time and they say gingers don't have souls. I was his friend. I don't know why people picked on him. He was just misunderstood. They had a neighbor who tutored him who said he was a genius. Mm. He was just a smart kid. But the neighbor said he was relentlessly bullied by other students. And then he, in turn, would make shocking statements. And I will say that a year before this, the school district suspended him briefly because he told a friend that he had this dream about putting on armor and coming to the school and killing all the bullies. Mm, Okay. So, right, so the Twitter world at the time says, oh, he had this hit list. How come the school didn't do anything about it? They just suspended him for five days. And I heard he checked out this book on murder at the school. And how come they didn't do anything about that? Bottom line, a lot of things that show there was a lot of information out there. Yeah. See something, say something. Now, I will say a neighbor who lives near the school said they saw a student walking on the way to the school with a gun, but didn't call because she thought it was a toy. Okay. She thought it was a toy.
0: If you're enjoying Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one.
2: now you hear this word, which you didn't hear back then, culture, the school culture. This is about the culture in the school, tolerance and intolerance. Who would stand by in a gym class and allow that to happen? And it's not just the defense counsel and what he said at trial trying to get us kid off. It's all the people in the community who are very willing to say, oh yeah, he was bullied all the time. That kid who got shot he got what he deserved. You know, mm-hmm. this kid was bullied all the time. How many people does it take? You know, research in the state says perpetrating school violence, strongest link, bullying.
0: Really? So bullying is one of the signs that we can look out for.
2: And there are ways to change the climate. And you have to do things that reach not just to the school. So for instance, certainly you have to create empathy and you have to have no tolerance for that type of conduct. But you have to have students who are willing to be upstanders. You have to not be a bystander to stand up and step in front and say, don't pick on him. Mm -hmm. We won't allow that. So that you get that really supportive relationship with the student to student, but also even with the student and the teachers. Because if you take this back to the beginning of the conversation, and we talk about the teacher who stepped in, and it was in that class, the teacher was highly respected. And that student had a great relationship with that teacher. Mm -hmm. And that's probably what made the difference. Right.
0: All about those human connections, isn't
2: it? It is. You know, one of the things that we've developed better in the United States is these threat assessment teams in both schools and offices. And the threat assessment teams give you, give your child, give the neighbor a place to call and share information and say, geez, this is going on. And if the school district at this school had a multidisciplinary threat assessment team and they had taken all these pieces of information that showed that there was a child who was only a sophomore, but he was bullied on a regular basis at this school so intensely that he was now talking about committing violence. It's easy in hindsight to see that, but I'll tell you, threat assessment teams are designed to not require hindsight. Mm -hmm.
0: This was 2013. Your research hadn't even come out by that stage. What now would you expect in terms of actions for a threat assessment team to make if they'd have seen this storm brewing?
2: I think that if we had a threat assessment team in place at a particular school and information was coming in that this child was constantly bullied and that he was beginning to speak and write about or do things that are violent in nature, then the threat assessment team shifts its focus into what we call threat management, meaning not that we would just say, hey, let's get him some counseling, which a lot of times that's what happens the Oxford high school counselor and parents agreed to have the Oxford shooter go get some counseling in the next 48 hours. And you see how that turned out. So instead, it's threat management means that you look at the situation and say, how can we give this person a better safety net? Maybe the shooter has a great relationship with Ryan, this teacher. And part of the threat assessment team is that we ask the student to stop at Ryan's office every day. And they meet before school just to touch base, to give Ryan some comfort level that there's somebody who cares there in the school. That's part of a threat management team.
0: I want to highlight the fact that we don't think bullying is an excuse for violence, but more a tool that we're using to highlight prevention.
2: I think there's never an excuse to kill another person. A human life taken is a human life taken. Tell me, Catherine,
0: the Taft school shooting, what were the hard lessons that we learned from this one?
2: For me, the hardest lesson is like a WTF moment and OMG, all the emojis I could possibly put (laughs) on every little phone. All the people who knew all kinds of things, you have to know this was not the only kid who was picked on in that school. Right. This was not the only type of bullying that occurred. It wasn't an isolated case. Everybody knew it, but mm-hmm. nobody knew how to provide support. This kid's up for parole in five years and he'll be 30 years old. He won't have had a life. How's he going to piece that back together? So my hard lesson is that when you stand by and let somebody get bullied, when you are not an upstander and report things, you are equally culpable for violence that happens in your world. What were your moments of hope and bravery from this story I think more than anything else the teacher and the school administrator Ryan and Kim who stepped up and stepped in to the line of fire mm-hmm. wanting to protect their other students was courage that only comes almost innately right you it's just part of who you are and you can't expect that type of courage from anyone you have to make a choice to fight to the death.
0: You may recall I mentioned at the end of the last episode, Catherine and I met some incredible podcasters at CrimeCon in both Vegas and London this year who create ethical and compelling content. So let me introduce you to one such podcast.
1: Hey friends, I'm Michael, host of the Murder Mile UK True Crime Podcast. I would be delighted if you joined me every Thursday for a walk through the untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders of London's West End. Featuring hundreds of fascinating true crime tales you won't hear anywhere else. If you're looking for something different, the award-winning and highly acclaimed Murder Mile UK true crime podcast is researched using the original police files. It's presented as a dramatization. Each episode is crafted as a labor of love. And it focuses on the victims' lives in an honest, detailed, and sympathetic way. Season 5 has just begun, so why not treat yourself to more than 150 episodes? If that sounds like your cup of tea, search for the Murder Mile UK True Crime Podcast. Thank you. Sick of being upsold at gyms?